The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We began last week a series, probably five-part series, on Berean distinctives. And what we're doing is we're looking at the doctrines that Berean Bible Church holds to that distinguish us from mainstream Christianity. Now, I'm doing these in what I see as their order of importance. And last week we looked at free grace, and I think this is by far the most important thing if the that you could understand is this doctrine that you are saved by grace through faith alone and your works play no part in this. And our works do not condemn us before God if we have trusted Him. We dealt with the the issue last week of free grace and the Lordship salvation. So if you missed that, go back and listen to that one. I just think that's very important. This morning we're going to look at the doctrine of sovereign election, which is also called Calvinism. The famous Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon wrote this, I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. Now, personally, I think it's sad that this is a distinctive doctrine of Brain Bible Church. Because it wasn't that long ago that most of the church held to this teaching. All the reformers held to sovereign election. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, Cramner. They all believed that salvation was of the Lord. So that was the German theologian, the Swiss reformer, the French reformer the Scottish Reformer and the English Reformer, every one of them believed not only in grace, but in Yahweh's sovereign grace in election. So let's begin this morning by looking at what Paul has to say in Romans 9. Now, the emphasis in this chapter is on the absolute sovereignty of God. I would say that Romans 9 is the normative passage in Scripture dealing with the sovereignty of God. Romans 9 is difficult for many folks to handle because it so strongly affirms the sovereignty of God in election. I remember the first time I taught on this passage, one of my friends came up to me afterwards and showed me his Bible. He'd been in church all his life. Parents were Christian, grew up in the church, and his Bible was all marked everywhere, but Romans 9, there wasn't a mark in it. He said, I'd never heard anybody teach on Romans 9. You know, you just stay away from it because you can't teach on it and not deal with the issues that are there. Romans 9, 10-13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father, forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Okay, so you get the context here. These kids are not born yet. They didn't do anything. They're still in the womb. In order that God's purpose of election may continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I've hated. So Rebekah gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau, and God chose Jacob. 
Now, God's unconditional election finds its most unequivocal expression in the choice of the younger twin born to Rebekah. Esau was the firstborn and should have had the right of primogeniture, a double blessing because he was the firstborn, but God chose Jacob. Now, in choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau, God had respect to nothing but his own purpose. The choice is solely in God and his sovereign choices. When we hear Paul say, not because of works, we naturally expect him to say next, but by faith. But that's not what he says here. He says, but because of him who calls. Why? Because faith is not a condition of election. Election is unconditional. The gospel is the good news about what God has done for His people. It is the good news about Yeshua the Christ who is the author and finisher of our faith. Salvation is a gift of God to His people from beginning to end. And the new birth roots in the resolute will of God as the motivating force which gives new life. Salvation is a work of God. Plain and simple. Man plays no part in the miracle of the new birth, and he cannot have. This is what we call the doctrine of sovereign election. A.W. Pink once began a message. He was in Australia preaching, and he began the message this way. I'm going to speak tonight on one of the most hated doctrines in the Bible, namely that of God's sovereign election. I know the truth of that. Okay, and believe me, I think this doctrine more than anything else, more than preterism, people can't stand it. People hate it. And I think we've had more people leave this church over the issue of sovereign election, God's sovereignty, than over preterism. They just can't handle it. I mean, it's just rude for God to think he's in control. And they can't deal with that. Well, Pink goes on to say, God's sovereign election is the truth most loathed and reviled by the majority of those claiming to be believers. Let it be plainly plainly announced that salvation originated not in the will of man, but in the will of God. That were it not so, none would or could be saved. For as a result of the fall, man has lost all desire and will unto that which is good. And that even the elect themselves have to be made willing, and loud will be the cries of indignation against such teaching. Most mongers will not allow the supremacy of the divine will and the impotence of the human will. Consequently, they who are the most bitter in denouncing election by the sovereign pleasure of God are the warmest in crying up the free will of fallen man. They didn't mince words back in the day, okay? They just said, you can't say stuff like that now. You'll hurt their feelings, okay? But the doctrine of sovereign election is hard for man to accept. It's just hard for man to acknowledge that his salvation is an act of God in his fallen state. He wants to assume some responsibility, even if it's a small responsibility, for having believed. He wants some credit for having made the right choice. The doctrine of sovereign election is repulsive to us because by our standard it seems unfair that God should out of all the human beings choose some 
at his own discretion to be saved and not the rest. Man in his fallenness wants a part because he wants to exercise his pride. Pink states, the doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God is a great battering ram against human pride. I agree. Paul put it this way. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Calvin says, We shall never be clearly persuaded, as we ought to be, that our salvation flows from the wellspring of God's free mercy until we come to know His eternal election, which illuminates God's grace by this contrast, that He does not indiscriminately adopt all into the hope of salvation, but gives to some what He denies to others. Now some may ask, is that fair? Is it fair for God to give to some what He denies to others? What about justice? Is God unfair? Well, first of all, we have to understand that God is never to be measured by human standards. Certainly not by the human standard of fairness, which is a reflection of man's fallenness. Do we as fallen sinful creatures have a higher standard of what is right than an infinitely and eternally holy God? What kind of pride is that? Psalm 50, 21 says, These things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. See, God is not like us. God is holy, and we are sinful. And the Scriptures warn us that we are not to assume that what we believe is the standard by which God must function. Whatever God does is righteous and just, because he does it. Psalm 97.2, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. When you say that God does anything that isn't fair, you've really stepped over the bounds. How can sinful man question God? Divine justice is an essential attribute of God, whereby he is infinitely and perfectly just in himself, of himself, for himself, from himself, by himself, and none other. Psalm eleven seven. Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. James Usher wrote this. The source of God's justice is his own free will and nothing else. For whatsoever he wills is just. And because he wills it, therefore it is just, not because it is just, and therefore he wills it. So a thing is just because God wills it. He doesn't will it because it's just by human standards. He sets the standard. Divine justice is an entirely different order than the character of human justice. And justice really isn't the issue anyway, is it? You don't really want to talk about justice when you talk about salvation. Because justice for all would be condemnation. That would be just. How could God be called unjust when whatever He does is just and the fact that He elected only certain ones to be saved when they didn't deserve it anyway, how is that unjust? Salvation is never a matter of justice 
It is always a matter of grace. Well, why teach this? I mean, if what Calvin said is true, what Luther and Spurgeon says is true, if it's so hard to understand and so despised by man, why teach this? Can you answer that question for me? Okay, it's in Scripture. Shouldn't that be kind of enough for us? Let me give you Calvin's answer to this, because I think Calvin really nails this. He says this, The Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit, in which as nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know, so nothing is taught but what is expedient to know. Therefore, we must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination in Scripture. See, we have this tendency, oh, they're young Christians, we better not teach them that. Lest we seem either wickedly to defraud them of the blessing of their God, or to accuse and scoff at the Holy Spirit for having published what is in it anyway profitable to suppress. Calvin goes on, but as for those who are so cautious or fearful that they desire to bury predestination in order not to disturb weak souls, with what color will they cloak their arrogance when they accuse God indirectly of stupid thoughtlessness, as if he had not foreseen the peril that they feel they have wisely met? Whoever then heaps odium on the doctrine of predestination openly reproaches God, as if he had unadvisedly let slip Something hurtful to the church. You see what he's saying? You think this is not good. We shouldn't let people hear about this. We shouldn't teach this because it will hurt people. So you're saying you're accusing God of stupid thoughtlessness. He didn't think about that. You're way smarter than him. He should have come to you and asked about this before he put that in the Bible. If it's in the scripture, people, then God wants us to know it. Well, let's look at what the scripture has to say about election. And we're just going to touch the tip of the iceberg today, people, because this could be, we could go on and on and on. The Bible is just loaded from beginning to end with the sovereignty of God, the sovereign election of God. Let's start with Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set His face on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because Yahweh loves you. God chose Israel. Okay? After Babel, when Yahweh had turned the nations over to lesser gods because of their disobedience to Him, He was done with them, so He turned them over to the lesser gods, And then he sat back in heaven and he just rang his hands and he goes, I hope somebody will choose me. Of all those nations that I turned away, I hope some, some, one of them will come back and say, no, we want you to be our God. We want, we want to love you. God is just frustrated. No, that's not the picture at all. Okay. God says, I'm going to choose Abraham. I'm going to start all over with a new nation and a new people. And the nation Israel was elect. They were chosen by God. Why? Why did God choose Israel? Because He wanted to. Do you have a problem with that? <laughs> okay. Why Abraham? 
Why did God choose him? Well, why did God choose you? The why rests in God's will. God doesn't call good people. You know why? Because there isn't any. Okay? Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So God chose Israel not because they were a great people. He chose Israel because he wanted to. The idea that man has some personal integrity and freedom that God dare not violate is the reverse of what the Bible teaches. Psalm 65, 4, Blessed is the one you choose to bring near, to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with thy goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. It's clear from Scripture that the nature of our election rests in God's Sovereign choice, not in ours. For the first 13 years of my Christian life, I was Arminian. I did not like Calvinists. I thought they were messed up. I thought this doctrine is not right. Everybody gets to choose. You know, we do what we want to do. I believed it was up to man's free will. And if he came to Christ, it was because he decided to. He got all the facts and he said, yeah, this sounds like a pretty good deal. I will choose him. You know what you could call this? You could call this decisional regeneration. I decide, and God regenerates. Kind of a good deal there, right? Well, what changed my mind was the text. See, I, my downfall was that I was teaching verse by verse. And so you get verses that you can't skip over, you can't ignore, you got to deal with. And I was teaching through James at the time, and I was in James 1.18, And I read of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And my first question here was, by his own will, what about my will? I mean, I had a choice in this, right? And so I began to study it out. I'll never forget that week, series of weeks. I was banging my head on the desk. I was crying out because I was being drawn into Calvinism by the scriptures and I did not want to. I came kicking and screaming, okay? But I couldn't resist it because everywhere I went, I began to see the sovereignty of God. I began to understand it. And if you're a Christian, it's because God has chosen you. You might think that you're a Christian because you believe the gospel, but the only reason you believe the gospel is because God gave you life. Here's what we need to understand. Here's where the church is totally backwards. Birth precedes belief okay the church has that backwards the church thinks you believe god gives you birth he gives you life but no and i think we understand this birth has to precede belief you can't believe if you haven't been born if you're not alive okay you can't believe all right that's very important that we understand that first john 5 1 everyone who believes that yeshua is the christ has been born of god and everyone who loves the father Loves whoever has been born of him. The ESV does a good job here. Everyone who believes has been born of God. For some reason, the New American Standard here, which is usually pretty literal, obscures the sense of the Greek 
verb in verse 1. It's, the ESV has it correct here. The tenses are very important here. Now, sadly, they're not made clear in the English translation, so just bear with me a minute. John here uses the present tense. Everyone who believes. It conveys the idea that everyone who is presently believing in Yeshua, then he says this, has been born of God. That's the perfect tense is used, which all Greek students know generally refers to an event in past time, the results of which persist to the present. So we have a present tense, we have a perfect tense. And the perfect tense would indicate that that represented by the perfect tense is an event that occurred previous to the other. The tense make it clear that the divine begetting is the antecedent, not the consequent, of believing. Birth precedes belief. Has been born of God is a perfect passive indicative conveying a settled condition brought about by an outside agent, which is Yahweh. So let's state it like this. Everyone who is presently believing in Christ is believing in Christ because he has been born of God. This verse teaches that faith is the result. Faith is the evidence of one's being born again and not the reverse. In other words, we're not born again as the result of our faith because birth precedes belief. Why does birth have to precede belief? Because if you're not born, if you're dead, okay, you really don't believe too much, all right? Ephesians 2 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. See, fallen man in his natural state lacks all power to commune with God because he's spiritually separated from God. And it's the it's analogous to death, all right? He's not ill, he's dead. And from the new birth, apart from the new birth, he can't understand spiritual things. They just don't make any sense to him. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. You ever shared the gospel with people and they're just like, what are you, nuts? What are you, crazy? What, it doesn't make any, you know. When I first became a Christian, someone gave me one of the gospel tracts, Big Daddy. I read it. I was so excited. I trusted Christ. That week I went out. I went to the bookstore. I asked my friend where he got that. He told me. I went to the bookstore. I bought a ton of the tracks. Every Friday night we had a kegger. And so at the kegger, I'm there, and I'm handing out these tracks to everybody. And I'm so excited because I'm like, everybody's going to get saved. They just read them and throw them down. And I was like, what is happening here? They, they didn't care. I was crushed. I was like, how come I'm so excited about this? No one else cares. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. That's foolishness. And look, at he's not able to understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. The natural person here, natural is the word sukakos. Jude uses the same Greek word. And Jude is translated as worldly. And then Jude says, devoid of the Spirit. So the natural person is the person without the Spirit of God, which means they're spiritually dead. They don't have a, anything to understand God with. The new birth or regeneration is absolutely necessary because apart from it, he doesn't have the ability. He just can't understand 
the things of God. And if you share the gospel with somebody and they get excited and they love it, it's because God has given them life. He might give them life at that very moment while you're sharing it. Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. We're dead, God gives life. When a person is dead, now this is an analogy, okay, but there's a reason for this analogy. Think about a dead person. Can they see? Can he feel? Can he act? Until God gives a person life, he's dead to spiritual things. Man is passive in the new birth. He does no more to produce his own birth than Lazarus did to produce his own resurrection. When Yeshua said, Lazarus, come forth, the words of God gave him life. He couldn't have responded unless he was brought to life first because he, he didn't hear him first of all. He's dead. He can't move. He's dead. Now, those who don't like the truth of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation, they come up with all kinds of ways around it. All right, and listen, people hold different doctrines because they have verses that they think support those doctrines. Most people don't come up with doctrines out of thin air. You know, they, they try to have some scripture at least to support what they believe. And so they come up with different scriptures. Well, oftentimes people will make up straw man arguments like Michael Heiser does on his Naked Bible podcast number 208, where he says this. He says, Calvinists, of course, make spiritual deadness about an inability to believe. Yeah. If you're dead, you don't have the ability to believe because you're dead. Based on the idea that dead people can't do anything. Ah, uh, Yeah, I would base it on that idea. Okay? They're dead. He says, but that presses the focal point of the metaphor, a dead body, into an unnecessary service. So I'm pressing the metaphor too far if I say dead people don't respond. No, I think that's the purpose of the metaphor. He says, that is, it takes all the aspects of the metaphor and then loads them into the discussion. That's an unintentional, but that's an intentional but unnecessary use of the metaphor. So I have a bone to pick with the Calvinists here. The spiritual death topic ultimately hinges on how one defines death. For Calvinists, death is the absence of conscious life. Not to any Calvinist I ever met. Okay? If you're going to use an argument, if you're going to say Calvinists believe something, talk to a Calvinist. Okay? You see what they did there? They loaded consciousness into the idea of death. For Calvinist, death is the absence of conscious life. No Calvinist believes that the Bible says that when they say man is dead, that man has no conscious life. Consciousness is being aware of our environment, our body, our lifestyle. Spiritually dead man is not aware of his environment. Okay? In the sense that spiritual environment, but the, but the spiritually dead man is very aware of his natural environment. All right, he knows where he is. He knows what he's doing. He understands all that. He's just unaware of the spiritual realm. He doesn't even recognize there is a spiritual realm. Heiser continues. In other words, if you define spiritual death based on all the elements of a dead body, a dead body obviously has no conscious life. If that's how you frame spiritual deadness, that you're unable to believe because dead bodies don't do anything, and they can't make decisions. 
Now again, Calvinists don't define spiritual death based on all the elements of a dead body. The dead body is an analogy of a spiritual condition. Man is spiritually dead to God. He's not dead to his environment. He's not dead to other people. Heidegger goes on to say, you have human beings that are no longer self-aware in a Calvinist system. Prior to regeneration, it just doesn't make sense. Oh, so we're not self-aware, huh? Self-awareness is having a conscious knowledge of one's own character and feelings. Spiritually dead beings are self-aware. Listen, they just aren't God-aware. And that's the analogy. It's a spiritual analogy about their spiritual condition. This is a total straw man argument by a man who's way too smart to be doing this. No Calvinist that I know of believes in what he says we believe. Okay? Please understand this. The new birth or regeneration is affected without means. Most Christians think that the means of the new birth or regeneration is the Word of God or faith. But regeneration is a direct act of God upon the spirit of man. Truth can't be the means of regeneration because before a man is regenerated, he's blind and he can't see the truth. He's deaf, he can't hear the truth. He's dead and he can't respond to spiritual truth. Truth can't be the means of the new birth when the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The increase of light will not enable a blind man to see. The disease of the eye must first be cured. A man must be regenerated by the Spirit before he can receive the truth. It's solely a work of the Spirit. Now, the Greek text of 1 Peter 1.23 helps clarify the concept of regeneration without means. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. The two prepositions of and through are different. The preposition of indicates the source. We are born of God. And through indicates instrumentality. The Holy Spirit gives us life so we can receive the Word. The new birth is a direct act of God upon the spirit of man. It is a spiritual resurrection. All right. Let me ask you this question, Bereans. Now think about last week's message and then give me an answer to this. How do you know if you have been born from above? Is there evidence to demonstrate the new birth? Ushers, remove this man. Is there evidence to demonstrate the new birth? Well, like Jeff said, people, most people would say, yes, obedience, you know, no fruit, no root. You got to do this, you know, got to do that, got to do this. But is there evidence of the new birth? Faith. Thank you, Mike. Faith. The evidence is faith. We just went over that. Everyone who believes has been born of God. How do you know you've been born of God? Because you have faith, you believe. And the reason you believe is because you've been born of God. Okay? That's your evidence. So the evidence is not, oh, good works, they go to church, they tithe, they didn't. No, that's not the evidence. The evidence, they believe the gospel. Because you can't believe it unless God gives you new life. Look at Acts 16, 13 through 14. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate of the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. If there wasn't a synagogue, they'd go to the river. 
to basically pray and meet with God. It's a great place, good thing to do, okay? We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. You had to have 10 men to have a synagogue. So if they didn't have 10 men, they didn't have a synagogue, you'd just go up by the river. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Yahweh opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament that uses the phrase, opened her heart. And the Bible gives the whole credit to this opening to God's power and not man's will. She was listening. God opened her heart to pay attention to what was going on. Modern evangelism does the exact opposite. They credit the opening of the heart to man's free will. Arminianism insists that man's free will must furnish the willingness or power, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit of God furnishes the power and ability of the new birth. Now notice exactly what God did here. We see here demonstrated what God must do before Lydia can be saved. First of all, he had to provide salvation, right? By grace through faith. Something that could be preached. And obviously, what was said by Paul is the gospel. The facts of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. So the Lord provided His Son, provided redemption. Secondly, God brought the message of His provision to Lydia. Somebody came to Lydia bringing her the message. He sent a preacher to her, Paul. And he went through a lot of trouble to get the Apostle Paul, straighten him out, and have him preaching the gospel. So Paul, here we have a gospel message and we have Paul and most people would say, well, that's really all you need. You just take that and, you know, they do it and the person makes their decision. You hear the gospel, somebody brings it to you, that's all. But tragically, they fail to see that that's not it. God must do something else. What else does God have to do? We got the gospel, we got someone delivering it. What else does God have to do? God has to open the heart. I heard an evangelist say once, pray for these people. God can do nothing else. The message has been given. They've heard it. God can't do anything. And I'm thinking, then why were we praying? Who are we praying to? What are we praying for? If God, it's up up to them. God can do nothing more. I'm like, God can do nothing more. That's okay. Why does anyone come to believe in Yeshua? It's only because Yahweh gave them life. He gave them life because he had, they had been chosen by God the Father in eternity past. And God picked out, this is something probably not that well understood, but God has His chosen people from eternity past. He made a decision, I'm going to pick these people and I'm going to give these people, the elect of God, as a love gift to my son for his sacrifice on the cross. Okay? I'm going to give them. Notice what Yeshua says. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All right, keep that in mind. This is context. People are not believing in him. He's preaching the gospel. They don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So some people aren't believing, but the ones that the Father has given me, they're coming to me. Now, what's important here to understand is will come to me, what this means. And if we back up a couple verses, Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. 
Okay? You see that? Coming to Christ, believing in Christ are synonymous concepts. These are parallel terms. Coming to Christ is the same thing as believing in Christ and vice versa. You have to keep that in mind in this context here. and It'll really help you understand what's being said. Very important. So who believes in Yeshua? It's all that the Father gives. Right? All that the Father gives. The ability to believe on Yeshua requires divine enablement. It is only those whom the Father enables to believe that come to or believe in Yeshua. These are all the people whom the Father gives to the Son as gifts. Yeshua viewed the ultimate cause of faith as God's electing grace, not man's choice. John 6 is a tremendous chapter dealing with this whole subject. Now, those of you who hold to an Arminian view here, you have to understand that the order here is crucial. All the Father gives will come to me. Yeshua does not say that all who come to Him will be given to Him by the Father. We don't determine our response, who will be the Father's gift to the Son. Rather, God is making the choice here. Our response is determined by the prior election of God. Now, the word gives here is a word of destiny. It's divine sovereign election. The concept of the elect being a love gift from the Father to the Son is taught throughout the Scripture. Notice what Isaiah says. Isaiah 8.18 Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me. So Yahweh gave Christ a certain amount of children. Are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Now who's speaking here? Well, the epistle of the Hebrews quotes these words as distinct words of Yeshua. Hebrews 2.13 And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So, speaking of Isaiah 8.18, the IVP Bible background commentary states this. These are not the words of the prophet, speaking of himself and his natural children, nor of his spiritual children, his disciples, called sometimes the sons of the prophets, but of Christ, who has a seed, a spiritual offspring, who are given him of God in the covenant of grace. So, the Tanakh represents the Father as promising the Son a certain reward for His suffering on behalf of sinners. All right, so Christ knew going to the cross, I'm going to be giving the love, a give, the love gift of the elect from my Father. The way most people see this, Christ died on the cross and then it's up to you to do whatever. What if nobody believed? Then Christ would have died in vain. But he didn't die in vain because he knew going to the cross that the Father was going to give him a love gift. Look at Isaiah 53, 10 through 11. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. His soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. This is a reference to the elect of God. God has given the elect to Christ. We are children of promise. And then he says, He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He's going to see it and not be frustrated. He's going to see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So when Yeshua says, 
all that the Father gives me will come or believe in me. He is saying, though many reject me, all that have been given will believe. Because he said, he, he says, I said to you, you have seen and yet you don't believe. But all that the Father gives me will believe. So you haven't been given by the Father, and that's why you don't believe. Whoever comes, I'll never cast out. How can Yeshua be sure that those who the Father has given Him will come to Him? What if they don't want to come? Does He drag them? (laughs) All right, this is to me the most ungetoverable verse as far as Calvinism goes, if you take it apart and understand what it's saying here, John 6.44, this, this is our, the Arminian crushing verse. No one can come to me, Yeshua says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. All right, come to me. Remember, can be translated, believe in me. No one can believe in me unless. Now, some have tried to interpret the word draws here as call or invite. Uh, the word used to be used, woo. You understand? <laughs> that word doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But God woos you. Woos me? <laughs> I don't under, even understand what that means. And they're, they're talking about call or inviting. But this is a gentle call. Please, come on. Come on, I want you to be one of mine. Some people would go so far as to say that God calls or invites everybody equally and at all times. They would say that the Father draws everybody. And then you either choose to refuse. You know, God, everybody's called. You make the decision. Well, this view distorts this text. If this is all that Yeshua is trying to say, his words make no sense in the context of the discussion in which he spoke them. His words only make sense if the implication is that his objectors may not have been drawn. And that's what he keeps telling these people. Oh, you don't believe, but that's because the Father hasn't called you. There are three things I want to point out here in this verse. First of all, the phrase, no one. This is a universal negative. That is to say, the phrase, no one includes both classes of people, Jews and Gentiles. Nobody. That includes everybody. When he said Jews and Gentiles, nobody. No one. Second, can come to me or believe in me. This has to do with the ability of man. Yeshua is saying no one, not Jew, not Gentile, has the ability to come to me, to believe in me. So, so far we got no one can believe in me. None. Unless, oh, there's an exception, right? There's a necessary condition. Yeshua said the necessary condition for someone coming to him, for someone believing in him, was God giving it to them. What does he give them? He gives them life. Simply put, God gives man life, which is the ability to come to Christ. Man on his own does not have that ability. He can't respond to God, to the call of God, to the word of God, to anything. He can't respond to it because he's a natural man. Now let's look at the word draws. It's funny what people do with this word apart from studying it. Okay, Just get a concordance, look it up. The Greek word here draws is helkuo. Helkuo means to drag. Oh, that doesn't sound very good. Actually, the definition of this word is to drag by irresistible superiority. It's used eight times in the New Testament. 
To understand what it means, you just go to some of the other uses in the New Testament and look it up. All right, let's look at John 18.10, same word. And Simon Peter, having his sword, Helkuo, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Now, let me ask you, let's substitute the word call or invite here, or woo. Does that make any sense? And Simon Peter wooed his sword, called his sword, invited his sword. Sword, I'd like to invite you to come to my hand. No, what did he do? He grabbed it. And by irresistible superiority, he pulled out his sword. What did the sword have to say about being drawn? Nothing. What about the the poor free will of the sword? It didn't choose to be drawn out of the sheath. Acts 16, 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them, Helkuo into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, what did they do? We'd like to invite you to come to the marketplace. Please come with us. We're wooing you to come. No, they grabbed him and they literally dragged him into the marketplace. Helkuo means to drag by irresistible superiority. Please take the time to look up all eight uses of Helkuo. Very important. You'll see what it actually is meaning here. They all have the idea of dragging, not inviting, not calling, not wooing. The definition of Helkuo is to drag by irresistible superiority. And what's interesting is if you look at outside the Bible, in the Greek, you see it means the same thing. Let's look at Homer. He says, and he drew Helkuo, the bow, clutching at once the notched arrow and the string of oxus sinew. Now, how did he pull that bow back? He drew the bow. Did he just... Kind of talk to it, come back. No, he grabbed it and he pulled it back. Okay, it didn't have any say in it. It was overwhelmingly drew by irresistible superiority. But Charbadon, with strong hands, caught hold of the battlement and tugged Helkuo. The whole length of it gave way. So he pulls this whole thing down. When a, when a drawstring is pulled back or when a battlement is tugged and made to fall... They don't invite, they're not called, they're dragged. They're forced back, they're forced over. The meaning of the word, I don't think can be any clearer. Nobody, people, is capable of coming to Yeshua unless the Father, by irresistible superiority, draws them. So in John 6.44, Yeshua is saying that no one can come to Him. Nobody. Unless, there's an exception, the people who come are the ones the Father draws to Him. This is what Calvinism calls irresistible grace or sovereign grace. It's not that God drags those who don't want to come. It's that God makes willing by His grace. In regeneration, God gives us spiritual life, which includes the desire for Him. And if God gives us a desire for Christ, we act according to that desire and we come to Christ. We choose Christ. It's not like, I don't want to be a Calvinist, but God's dragging me. No! I don't want to be saved. God's making me. No. He gives you the desire. He gives this desire to the people that He has given to the Son. Yeshua says this again in verse 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. So, God has given Christ some people. Right? 
And I'll raise it up at the last day. Who gets resurrection life? It's all that the Father's given Christ. Isn't that what it says? If the Father gives them, the Son will raise them at the last day. All who are given are raised. God the Father has given the elect to Christ as a love gift. Yeshua says this again in verse 65. And He said to him, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted by My Father. Four times in this chapter, He tells believers that they cannot believe in Him unless they have been given to Him by the Father who will draw the given. Now I'm sure you realize this truth is not isolated to John 6. The concept of believers being gifts to the Father for the Son is a central element of Yeshua's high priestly prayer in John 17. When Yeshua had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. So Christ is going to give eternal life to who? The ones the Father has given Him. To the elect. Look at verse 6. I have manifest your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Who's Yeshua pray for? He prays for the elect. He doesn't pray for the world. Okay? Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. So those given to Yeshua by God the Father are children of promise. God is selective in salvation over and over again. It's those who the Father gave to the Son. Let me give you one more verse on election before we move on. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first roots to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So who gets thanked? God. Why does God get thanked? Because He's the one doing it. God chose them. That's the reason they come. All right? Now, when people first hear this doctrine, I mean, you can throw all the Scriptures you want out there. they got to have some Scriptures that are going to say, well, what about this? What about this? So here's some questions that I have found over the years often arise, and let me just try to give you some quick answers here. People often say, what about the people that aren't elect? What happens to them? What happens to them is they get what all sinners deserve. They perish because of their unbelief. See, men are responsible for their sin. And out of all humanity, God chose some to save. That's grace. The others get justice. They get what they deserve. And often people will say, well, what about John 3.16? Doesn't it say that God loves the whole world? That's what it does say, for God so loves the world. The word world is the Greek cosmos, and John is telling the Jew that God's love is not limited to the bounds of Judaism. Remember, we've got to think in this context. The Jews felt that God just loved them. He's saying, no, God loves the world. This is not saying God loves every single person in the world. There's a whole lot of scriptures that talk about the world, and we know it's not everybody. 
uh, it, the scriptures say the whole world worships Diana. Well, we know that the Christians weren't worshiping them, so it can't mean everybody in the world. So this is God loves Jews and Gentiles. The, like I said, the use of the word world throughout the scriptures makes it clear that it doesn't refer to every single person. People often ask, what about 1 John 2? 2? He's the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. Again, the world is Jew and Gentile. And the idea here is Christ is the only advocate. He is the only propitiation. This is speaking exclusively of Christ's work. In other words, you either accept Christ's work or you have no propitiation. He's the only propitiation. The only one there is. People will often go to 1 Timothy 2.4, who desires all people to be saved. They say, see that? God wants everyone to be saved. Well, look at the context. It's clear that all people refers to all types of people. It's the same all men that they're to pray for in verses 1 through 3. I, I, he says, I wish you pray for all men, for kings, for those in authority. For all. Well, God wants all different types of people to be saved. You know, to say that God desired all people to be saved but was unable to save all men, would say that God's impotent. And many people, this is the God they serve. He's up in heaven. I want everybody to be saved. I just can't do it. I wish they'd come to me. I've done everything I can. I wish they'd come. They won't come. If it was God's purpose to save all men, if Yeshua died for all men, if the Holy Spirit is trying to win all men to Yeshua, by observation and fact, it's obvious that most people don't believe in Christ. And they're dying without eternal life. Then what you have is a God who is disappointed, a Savior who is dissatisfied, and a Holy Spirit that's defeated. To argue that God is trying His best to save mankind, but the majority of men won't let Him, is to insist that the will of the Creator is impotent and the will of the creature is omnipotent. But the God of the Bible is not impotent, He's not under the will of man. The God of the Bible is absolutely sovereign. If he wants to do something, he does it. Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist says. He does whatever he pleases, okay? And the same is said about 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. See, they'll run to this. See, God doesn't want people to perish. Again, we must look at the context. The context deals with scoffers asking what happened to the promise of the second coming. And Peter's response in verse 9 is, Yeshua will come just as He said, but He's long-suffering toward you. Go back in the context The you is the elect, waiting for His coming. He's waiting for them to come to repentance. God is not frustrated, people. He doesn't desire things that He can't get. He's God. People often ask, what about all the scriptures that say, whosoever wills may come? Well, that's true. Whoever will may come. The problem is no one wills unless God calls them. They don't want to. If you want to, come on. Well, what if I'm not one of the elect? If you want to, you can come because you're chosen if you want to. Because you must that want to because God gave you the want to. The offer is open to all. Now, someone wrote to me and they said this. What if the elect and called and chosen was something that God did in the first century to bring the gospel to the world, and now we are just simply believers? Okay, what 
this is about is, and I, I get this argument, some, some preterists want to argue against Calvinism and say, well, God called people before, but now after AD 70, he doesn't have to call, there's no elect anymore. So my question would be, has the nature of man changed since AD 70? In other words, God, man was this way, he's born in sin, and then since AD 70, he's not born in sin anymore? If he's not born in sin, he doesn't need a savior, okay? So I think the constitution of man, I'm just taking a wild guess here, but I think man is still sinful, okay? <laughs> if you need examples, <laughs> look at your life, okay? Man is still sinful, all right? Man still needs a Savior. So I don't think anything changed. In AD 70, the kingdom was consummated. The fulfillment of the new covenant came in its fullness, but man still needed to be called by God and given life or he would never come to Christ, People, the doctrine of election is not taught to confuse us. It's taught to destroy our pride and elicit our praise. When you really understand why you're a Christian, I think it just causes you to fall on your face in gratitude before God saying thank you. Because before that, you're like, yeah, I kind of made this decision. I was smart enough. Other people are kind of dumb, but I saw it and I got it. Okay, and so you're kind of sharing the glory with God. No, this, re- this is, wipes that all out. Okay, Calvin said this, For neither will anything else suffice to make us humble, as we ought to be, nor shall we other make us sincerely feel how much we are obligated to God. That's true when you understand it. When you understand, okay, this is all of God. I'm out of the picture. God did this for me. It just, I think, causes a heart of gratitude. I want to close this morning with a quote from John Robbins of the Trinity Foundation. Uh, Gordon Clark, a lot of his writings are published by the Trinity Foundation. Uh, I, I like this quote of Robbins. It's maybe a little harsh for people today, but suck it up, buttercup. All right, <clears throat> here's what Robbins has to say. Most churches in the United States that call themselves Christian reject the gospel. They teach, if they're liberal, that Jesus was a good man, even a martyr, but he died in no one's place. Or, if they are conservative, that Jesus died in everyone's place, desires all men to be saved, and offers salvation to all. But in reality, it makes little difference whether a church is large, respectable, and liberal, and teaches that Jesus died for no one, or enthusiastic, growing, and conservative, and teaches that Jesus died for everyone. The result is the same. Jesus Christ actually saves no one. No one at all. Both liberals and conservatives agree that people save themselves by an exercise of their wills. The conservative Christ makes salvation possible if people will only let him into their hearts. The liberal Christ points the way to salvation if people would but follow his example. Neither Christ saves. The liberal Christ, at best, is a brave soul who endures injustice rather than renounce his belief in humankind. The conservative Christ is a wimp who begs people to let him into their hearts. This, people, is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is sovereign king who has chosen people from eternity past, drawn that people to himself, put them in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because God chose you and drew you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word.
Lord, I know how difficult this doctrine is for so many people. Because I once so greatly opposed it. But Father, I think it is a glorious, pride-crushing doctrine. Lord, I thank You. In and of myself, I never would have come to You. Thank You that You and Your grace reached out, gave me life, drew me into Your family. I thank You, Lord, that we're Yours because You chose us. We have nothing to brag about before You. We humbly bow before You, thanking You for the gift of life. Amen.